This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Seven senior pharmaceutical CEOs testified before the Senate Finance Committee yesterday to address the high drug prices they are charging consumers. The executives, including those from Merck and Pfizer, defended the prices, saying they invest large amounts of money into researching and developing new drugs, and they shifted some of the blame to other parts of the U.S. healthcare care system. For example, they said that they have to offer rebates to insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers, otherwise known as PBMs, which forces them to raise costs. They said that they would reduce prices if these were outlawed. One of the drug uh, drugs the lawmakers chose to highlight was insulin, which has an out-of-pocket cost that has risen sharply for consumers, even though the net price of the drug has actually gone down. The CEO said that they would be willing to work with the lawmakers on other ways to keep prices down. But the big question is, how likely is that? To discuss the testimony and the possible changes, we are joined here in studio by Rob Field, law professor and uh, uh, professor of health management and policy at Drexel University, and also a lecturer in the healthcare management department here at the Wharton School. And also with us, Ashley Swanson, who's an assistant professor of healthcare management here at Wharton as well. Rob, good to see you. Ashley, nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Thanks. Nice to see you. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, obviously, testimony is one thing, Rob, but but really, as they say, the devil's going to be in the details as to how this is going to actually move forward. And, and I guess we start out is, do you have optimism that we can actually see, I guess, what would have to be a partnership between government and these drug companies to be able to, to reduce the pricing? Yeah, I see cautious optimism. We've been down this road before. Uh, the Kefauver hearings in the 1950s covered almost the same ground. If you go through the transcripts of those hearings, it's kind of eerie. Uh, you could almost take quotes out of that and, and put it into yesterday's hearing. Is this time going to be different? It seems as though pharma's influence on Capitol Hill is waning. It seems like you have interest on both sides of the aisle in doing something about it. It's a tremendous winner as a political issue. It, it affects people, huge majority of the public want Congress to do something. So I'm cautiously optimistic. On the other hand, the pharmaceutical industry has been beating back initiatives like this for 60 years, and they may be just as strong today. Ashley? Well, I think, you know, when you see a lot of finger pointing without any uh, real conclusions drawn about what policies are going to facilitate competition or bring prices down or put stronger pricing pressures on drugs with closed substitutes, Um, it makes you a little bit pessimistic, and I think that's where I'm at. I see a lot of finger-pointing, but I'm not sure that policy solutions are on offer. I mentioned the rebates evolving with the PBMs, but that can't be the only issue at play really here. So when you look at at this issue of pricing in general, where are the areas that you really focus on? Well, I think that um, you do see... PBMs do have a benefit to provide. They they have the ability to say no to um, to drugs that have closed substitutes, and that has been shown in the past to bring prices down. But you have a lot of these anti-competitive policies out there, like pay for delay, um, like having um, you know drugs in protected classes that are required to be offered, um, limitations on uh, issuers or PBMs' abilities to say no to pharmaceutical companies. Those do have an effect of increasing prices. Rob? Yeah. Um, it 
I said I was cautiously optimistic uh, that, that something may happen, but will it be something structural that's really needed or it will be something more superficial? Uh, getting rid of the rebates, the relationship between the drug companies and the pharmacy benefit managers, uh, I think would have a very positive effect. But as Ashley was saying, I think we need something deeper to really get to the root of the problem. The way the companies game the generic uh, business yeah. and pay, pay to keep generics off the market, uh, add superfluous patents uh, so that they can keep their monopoly going uh, beyond the, the 20 years that's allotted. Uh, we, we really need to address that. That was going to be my next question, is what is the time frame right now that drug companies are allowed to have to basically have first rights on a particular drug when it's developed and it goes to market? Depends how good their lawyers are. <laughs> According to the law, it's 20 years from the date they filed the patent application. Right. Um, but they can't begin testing the drug until the patent has been filed. So they will say 10 to 12 years is taken up out of that time with the testing <laughs> before it can reach the market. So right. we're really looking at maybe eight years to recoup their losses. However, the law is filled with exceptions. Uh, they get an extra five years uh, to make up for the um, availability of generics. They get extra time for testing on children. Uh, they can tweak the patents to say that it's a new drug and the patent should run from the tweaking, not from the original time that the patent was filed. Right. So uh, some drugs can remain on patent for, for decades if they're clever enough. Which obviously gives uh, these drug companies a, an unbelievable benefit, Ashley. Absolutely. Um, one thing we're seeing today is some uh, questionable use of the, uh, of the Orphan Drug Act, where you have drugs that were developed some time ago uh, being uh, granted additional benefits and exclusivity for new indications um, when, you know, not a lot of new development effort went into creating these drugs or or tweaking them for the new indications or proving that they're good for the new indications. So so that's a problem that we need to address as well. We're joined here in studio by Rob Field of uh, Drexel University, Ashley Swanson from here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Your comments are welcome on uh, drug pricing. Uh, the testimony uh, yesterday on Capitol Hill by uh, executives from seven different companies. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. One of the things I found interesting in a lot of the reporting about this yesterday is that the commentary seems, especially from FDA chief Scott Gottlieb, that he also really understands that this is a problem and this is something that needs to be tackled. And I guess if you have the FDA really pushing forward the initiative, how much of a benefit do you think that, that the FDA can be in trying to change some of the, the policy, the philosophy that's behind this? Well, I think that's a hard question to answer. I mean, certainly the FDA has a has a big role in in quality control and managing the development process. Um, but what happens once the drugs are developed? I think that's um, that's a little bit more complicated. I mean, you you have all of these new incentives for innovation, incentives for uh, incentives involving exclusivity for drugs that we've considered, you know. Uh, high-value targets, and certainly the FDA has a big role to play in that process. Um, so the fact that they're on board with trying to uh, limit abuse and limit uh, exorbitant prices in the subsequent markets that are developed is is great. I'm just not sure how much that's going to move the needle. 
Rob? Yeah, the, the FDA really doesn't have authority in this area, and they've tried to keep a strict separation between what they do in assessing safety and efficacy and the economic side of it. And in fact, historically, they've wanted to stay out of the economics because that's a whole new area that they don't really have expertise in. So I think Scott Gottlieb uh, can get on a bully puppet and um, maybe make changes around the edges, but he does not have direct authority to affect the pricing. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. We're talking about the uh, testimony on Capitol Hill yesterday by uh, several uh, executives from uh, drug uh, and pharma companies. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. On the phones, we go to Westchester, New York. Jeff is on the line. Jeff, go ahead, sir. Hello, Jeff. Go ahead. Hello. Hello. Jeff, go ahead, sir. Yeah, hi. Given that the drug development business is a capital-intensive business that's highly risky, and billions of dollars get poured into research for drugs that many of which are total flops, where do your guests think that the money is going to come from and the incentive to spend this money is going to come from if you squeeze the profitability out of the drug business, you think the tooth fairy is going to deliver <laughs> new drugs? Okay. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Go ahead. There's a lot of squeezing you can do. Uh, the drug companies are among the most profitable in the country year after year. If you look at their rate of return, they're almost always in the top three. Some years, they're the most profitable. And this has been going on for decades. Uh, so they can remain profitable. Uh, and and lower their prices. There's a lot of margin there. And then there's controversy about what they spend on marketing and promotion, yeah. um, not to mention uh, executive salaries. Uh, so I, I agree with the caller uh, that we want to make sure there's money there for innovation. But uh, there's a lot of squeezing that can be done before we risk innovation. Ashley? I think we've been very comfortable in, in this country with the idea that we should give strong innovation incentives for innovation, uh, and we are treating drug uh, development as uh, at least a short-run natural monopoly, and that's totally fine. But the ability of pharmaceutical manufacturers to find you know margins here and margin there to to push their exclusivity, to push their prices higher, to increase prices long after their drugs have been developed, right. that's where we need to squeeze. Jeff, thanks very much for the call. I, I think a lot of people, uh, if you think about some of the instances that we've seen over the last few years, uh, Martin Shkreli comes to mind right mm -hmm. off the bat uh, with with what uh, he was involved with. And, and when you see that type of, of, of work being done, to, that really does hit at the consumer when overall the issue of, of having affordable health care is, is a big problem to begin with. It does taint the system, and, and it makes you wonder if one person is doing this, are, are a lot of the other companies doing a version of this as well? Yeah, Ashley was describing some of the exceptions to the patent rules, orphan drugs, and so forth. We have this sort of Rube Goldberg contraption of a patent system yeah. where it's supposed to be 20 years, and then we have all these add-ons and, and ways to get around it and tweak it and so forth. And once you have an opening, uh, for-profit companies are going to find a way to, to exploit it. Um, we're dealing with life and death. A life and death product now, yeah. so so yeah. it's it's different uh, from if a consumer good if if the TV companies figured out to, a way to exploit the the patent laws, uh, and so when you have a villain who's found a, a, a clever route around some of the patent rules, uh, they really are a villain in terms of people's lives. Um, 
Which is to say that if we really want to get at the heart of the problem, we're going to have to do something about this patchwork system of, of patent exceptions that we have uh, and really make it clear, what do you get for developing a drug? How long do you get? When does it end? Right. And what rights do the consumers have? So then is that 20-year number, if it was just that 20-year number, Ashley, is that a fair number to have attached to a particular drug? I think having a 20-year number attached to a particular drug, probably there are some drugs where that's appropriate. Um, 20 years is a rule of thumb. It's something we use very broadly, and it's clearly not appropriate for every drug. Right. But coming up with a regulatory um, process that modifies that that number of years for every drug as new indications become approved, that's that's impossible. Yeah, that was going to be my point, because I would think with the numbers of drugs that we're talking about and being able to kind of, uh, you know, call a different number for each one of them, you would have an unbelievable uh, bogging down of the system to a degree, right? It would be a big change. Rob? Yeah. You couldn't really do that. What you would expect is the companies to cross-subsidize uh, the, the less profitable drugs with the more profitable ones. So if we had a rule of thumb, it was 20 in all cases, uh, you'd have uh, a balance of those for which it should be shorter and those for which it should be longer, um, which is, in essence, in essence, what they do now when drugs flop. Uh, they take those costs and they distribute it among the drugs that succeed. Um, so I, I, I think we could come up with a hard and fast rule. The, the important thing is to know when the drug is off patent and we can let the free market work. It, do we know, uh, on average, when you look at, at the research, Rob, what the average is on success or failure of particular drugs as they are being developed in general? Or is it really a case-by-case -case basis because of, of what you're trying to do? Well, it's the same problem with statistics that you always have. Uh, which statistics are you going to believe? If you start okay. from yeah. the test tube and the, the molecules in the lab, uh, they will tell you it's less than 1% actually make it to an actual drug. Right. Uh, and then the further along it gets, the higher that percentage. Until they've actually invested, once they've actually invested in it with clinical trials, you're seeing a much higher percentage, although it's still low. It's still, Ashley might know the figure better than I would. It's probably still about 10%. 10% sounds about right to me, but you're right. Once you go back to the drug was a twinkle in some scientist's eye, like <laughs> the success rate gets, you know, epsilon, very, very close to zero. But, but again, the investment that, that these companies are making in these particular drugs it is, I guess it's a fair estimate that in many cases you are putting millions of dollars into drugs in many cases on one particular drug over the course of uh, of five years, 10 years, just to be able to see if you can advance it far enough down the line so that it can get approval. Absolutely. I mean, many, many billions of dollars are spent on drug development in this country. Um, and it makes total sense that these firms are going to get some monopoly profits after they introduce these products because there is a lot of investment and in, there's a lot of investment in failed products. Um, designing a policy that rewards that investment appropriately uh, in every case, and especially you know when you have these multi-drug 
uh, manufacturers, then all that cross subsidization is going to work well. But we have a lot of we have a lot more fragmentation in pharmaceutical development today than than we did years ago. And so uh, figuring out how that cross subsidization is going to work becomes a, a harder problem. Right. And remember, a lot of the money they're spending on drug development, they're actually not spending on drug development. They're spending on buying other companies or licensing other drugs right. that other companies have developed. Uh, so it's a much more complicated system. And if we treat tweak the patent rules, we may be affecting the mergers and acquisitions more than the actual development of drugs. But I, I mentioned at the top, obviously, this back and forth that seemingly is there with the big pharma companies saying, well, no, but other parts of the industry are just as responsible, if not more responsible, for the high cost of drugs than, than we are at this point. Well, uh, I, I think everyone has their share of blame. Uh, Congress will be uh, interrogating insurance executives about the PBM arrangements, and, and clearly uh, they're not blame-free. Uh, but when you look at an industry that has raised the prices of something like insulin, which is a life-or-death medicine that's been around since the 1920s, yeah. uh, you have to wonder what's going on. Now, having said that, when you look at the broad picture, for most Americans, uh, they have decent uh, drug coverage. Yeah. They take drugs that are not specialty drugs, that are not costing hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and the system works reasonably well. Yeah. The problem is, for those for whom it doesn't work, it's a life-and-death issue and can be a disaster. Ashley? Uh, yeah, well, I was actually thinking of... Uh, the broader picture of what happens, we have this you know, patent monopoly system, and then we say t competition is going to take over. And you can point to a lot of success stories where competition taking over works really well. You have huge penetration of generic drugs in Medicare Part D today. Uh, when Medicare Part D was, was first formed after the Medicare Modernization Act of 2003, um, drug prices actually went down because PBMs were doing a pretty good job of keeping drug prices down. But then you can point to a lot of cases where competition isn't working so well. You know, um, old generics that only have one producer today, their prices are skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. You have these examples where due to the kind of spread pricing arrangements with PBMs, competition is not driving business to the highest value drugs. I mean, there are a lot of things that where there are a lot of areas where competition is not kind of carrying the ball to the end zone the way we thought it would. Why do you think then then we've lost that 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 level of competition? Is it just the 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 consolidation that we've seen in parts of the industry over time and and obviously some of the other factors that are going on in healthcare right now? Well, in some cases, I'm, I'm sure the underlying economics are just not there for a lot of entrants to come in. I mean, especially when you're talking about drugs that have really small patient populations, yeah. it's not going to be profitable for a generic manufacturer to come in there. But then there are other examples where policy is not doing a great job. Like, we are not doing a good job of getting biosimilar competition in the U.S. We have... Uh, terrible, um, terrible policy regarding um, use of copay coupons to shut down price incentives uh, in, say, employer-provided uh, health insurance markets. There's a lot of places where policy could do a better job. Rob? Yeah. Uh, pharmaceuticals, as all of healthcare, just don't fit the private market model. Uh, consumers aren't able to pick and choose the way they are a model of car or TV. Uh, they can't comparison shop. And as Ashley just mentioned, when you have a drug with a very small market, uh, the drug companies are not going to invest a lot in that. Uh, the investors aren't going to want to uh, invest in companies that focus on those. And um, uh, you're going to have to have some kind of tweaks to, to the patent system and, and, the, and the market system. Everyone wants to invest in blockbusters, the statins that 
uh, hundreds of millions of people take and they take for the rest of their lives. Um, we still haven't really worked out the economics of those specialty drugs with smaller markets. And that's where the big price rises are occurring. And that's really where our legislative focus should be. That brings you to that, that point, the legislative focus. And, and I think a lot of people would, would say, I wish this is, these are conversations that would have occurred five years, 10 years ago. Obviously, these are, these are on the, the forefront right now. And as you mentioned before, Rob, it seems like that there is bipartisan support to really try and, and tackle these issues. But again, is there enough will on Capitol Hill to really drive this, especially when we know that, that, that there is a history of, uh, of support on Capitol Hill by a lot of these companies in the first place. Yeah, well, as, as I was saying, uh, it's not five or ten years ago we were describing this. It's 60 years yeah. ago that we were describing this in the 1950s. Uh, so it's it's almost like a chronic condition that flares up every decade or two and then goes into remission, and we don't really do anything to get to the root cause. Uh, this time may be different uh, because of the uh, appeal uh, in the public, the huge public support for it. Um, it does seem as though pharma's clout on, on Capitol Hill is somewhat less than it used to be. Um, but there is a danger that we will see cosmetic changes that don't get to the root cause. I think to a degree we almost th – this comes at a right time to bring this issue up because of the fact that we have an election cycle coming up next year. And as we know, where issues surrounding uh, your wallet are concerned, those are things that can influence – what people do at the polls. Well, we also saw health care as a major issue in the yeah. 2016 uh, election. Uh, I'm sorry, in the 2018 election. Yeah. And it's become even more uh, visible uh, as the Democrats push for Medicare for all and uh, say that they're going to do something about the insurance problems that we have. And drug companies, uh, drug prices are a particularly poignant aspect of this issue. So I think everyone wants to show that they're out front on this issue, that they're aware of health care problems, uh, and maybe that will lead somewhere. Ashley? Well, I, I think it's enormously popular. Uh, it's an en enormously popular um, uh, policy area to, to have as part of your platform. Um, but figuring out whether it's just going to be kind of uh, – Things like we're going to allow Medicare to negotiate prices or we're going to import drugs from other countries versus getting into the getting into the weeds of policies that are uh, likely to work really well that have trade offs. I think that's where it's going to get complicated, like um, uh, access to prescription drugs are uh, that's very important to constituents uh, as well as prices. So if you have a policy that's sensible but involves an access price trade off, yeah. that's going to be less popular, um, even though it might work. Rob? Yeah. So to make a not very bold prediction, uh, we won't solve everything this time. And no. the issue <laughs> no. will. will come up again in another five or 10 years. What's really brought it to a head now is the specialty drugs, the biotech drugs that yeah. didn't exist 15, 20 years ago. Five or 10 years from now, we're going to be dealing with genomic drugs and precision medicine. Right. And they are extremely expensive, and there's a whole different market dynamic. But again, that that's part of, of the issue of if Congress is going to actually want to do something, they want to be out front 
on this. They want to be thinking five or ten years down the down the road to some of these issues that we know that are going to be out there. Well, unfortunately, out front for Congress means the next election, yeah, right. and that's yeah. a year right. and a half away. So yeah. uh, doing something several election cycles from now yeah. is not what most congressmen have the luxury of, of thinking about. The other problem is when you talk about genomics, so much is unknown. Uh, what kinds of therapies we're going to have, how much they're going to cost to develop, it is going to be tough to be proactive on that. Great having you both here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. Sure. Thank Thanks. you. Ashley Swanson from here at the Wharton School, Rob Field uh, at Drexel University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.